This is Queen Victoria. Welcome to The Murder Lab, the podcast where I don't just discuss one serial killer, I discuss several serial killers and something they have in common. This is an extension of the Families That Murder Together series. In the last episode, I covered the Hillside Stranglers and the Killing Cousins. The Killing Cousins were David Allen Gore and Fred Waterfield. If you haven't listened to that episode, you should listen to that episode because it will help give context to this episode. I had, as a source, a book called The Serial Killer Letters, and I referenced some of the letters and the information from that book because Gore was included in that book. I also mentioned that a book existed called The Serial Killer Whisperer. I had not read that yet, so... I promised an episode where I compare the notes that Gore wrote in The Serial Killer Whisperer and the notes in The Serial Killer Letters. That is this episode. Woohoo! To kick it off, I will begin to tell you about The Serial Killer Letters. It's by Jennifer Furio. The full title is The Serial Killer Letters, a penetrating look inside the minds of murderers. What Jennifer did is she created a stock letter that she sent to a bunch of serial killers and then kind of, you know, would see who would bite back. Who would bite back? <laughs> well, in some cases, that might be possible. But to see who would, uh, who would write her back. This is the letter that she wrote. I'm writing to you because I'm interested in finding out what happened to you, how you ended up in prison. Right now, I'm corresponding with several incarcerated men who have been convicted of murder. Some of them say they're innocent. Others admit their guilt. I know that there are innocent men in prison and guilty men. Those who are innocent are suffering for crimes they did not commit. And maybe the guilty men also suffer because they have to live with themselves. And many of them, both guilty and innocent, are facing death, living isolated on death row with no one to talk to. What about you? Are you guilty or innocent? I don't think it's possible for anyone, no matter how tough their skin, to ignore and abandon past transgressions, especially when they are the worst, most violent hate crimes imaginable. I know what I've read about you in books, but I realize that these biographical books are not always accurate. I would like to hear your side of the story. Also, please rest assured that I am an open-minded person and that I have no interest in judging you. In my opinion, honesty is all important. It can set you free. It can help you live with yourself. That is not to imply that I'm assuming you're guilty. I just want you to tell me, honestly, how you ended up in prison. Some of the guys who have written to me have bravely owned up to their crimes and have made generous efforts to explain what happened to them. Some have told me about their childhoods, most of which were horrible beyond belief. It's clear to me, but I don't think always to them, that many of them were victims themselves, victims of abuse and neglect. The things they've told me about their early years and especially about their mothers are so awful it makes me cringe. Not that a bad childhood works as an excuse for killing people, but it certainly can have catastrophic effects later in life. The stories I have heard are scary and tragic, but I still want to know. Don't you agree that it's important to understand why things happen? Especially when they are as drastic as a murder conviction, or many murder convictions. If you're guilty, can you admit it? Or maybe you already have. What drove you to commit the crimes? Do you know? Or haven't you been able to figure it out? Maybe you haven't even tried to understand. If that's the case, maybe now is a good time to start. I'm not afraid to hear the truth. No matter how frightening or shocking your story is, I would be grateful if you would share it with me. If you're innocent, isn't it important that others know? That you make an effort to make your voice heard? 
I'm sure you've already told people who needed to know, lawyers, judges, jury, etc. But will you consider sharing this information with me? I realize I'm asking you to divulge some very personal information, so it's only fair that I tell you a little about myself. I live in Bellingham, Washington, and I teach Sunday school. I am married and have two young children. I spend most of my time taking care of them. This may seem like a boring life to you, but it's not to me. In fact, my love for my children is indirectly related to why I wrote to you in the first place. I love my children, and I don't want them to have to grow up into a world seething with hate and violence. Of course, I personally cannot stop either of these, but my thinking is that the more we understand how these things happen, the better equipped we'll be to approach them, deal with them, and maybe even prevent them from occurring in the first place. Even though I am frightened and sickened by these crimes, I also believe in grace. I really do. No matter how horrible the crime, I feel everyone deserves the opportunity to be forgiven. Please write back to me. I know you don't know me, and that it might be difficult to reveal this personal information to a complete stranger, but at least it will give you a chance to speak your mind. I'm here to listen to you with an open mind and an understanding heart. Sincerely, Jenny. She sent that to over 50 incarcerated men, including Angelo Bono, which is one of the Hillside Stranglers I covered in the last episode. And it's funny because he would not answer her, but he had a cellmate or a, uh, a fellow inmate respond for him and <laughs> told her to, and I quote, I am telling you, lay off my man. So, <laughs> so uh, Mr. Bono didn't respond. So she further explains why she thinks, it, thinks it's so important to educate ourselves about why they do these and, and what is happening. And with the underlying theme, how else can we stop them if we don't understand them? There is more to that, though. She says that growing up, she was surrounded with murder. When she was 11 and living in Redding, California, a man killed a mother and her 14-year-old stepdaughter who lived close to Jennifer's house. About a year later, also in her hometown, a 12-year-old girl she knew was raped and murdered. Also in that area, around the same time, Cameron Hooker abducted a young woman named Colleen Stan, locked her up in a box the size of a coffin for 10 years, and made her his sex slave. In Sacramento, where she went to school, she lived in the same apartment complex where Richard Chase, the notorious vampire killer, lived a few years before. In college, she knew a woman who was murdered after her car broke down late at night. Only blocks from her house in Sacramento, Dorothea Puente had murdered as many as 13 men and women in the late 1980s. Later, after she got married, three librarians were shot and killed at their local library. Then, a woman was taken from her car at the grocery store, where she shopped every day, and was raped, killed, and decapitated. And when she moved to Bellingham, Washington, as those of you who uh, listened to the last episode, I'm sure your ears perked up when you heard Bellingham, that was where Kenneth Bianchi, one of the Hillside Stranglers, had committed two murders. So she was surrounded by people who were getting killed, and we did cover Dorothy Puente in, I believe like the second episode of Murder Lab. So if you missed that, make sure you catch that. I will be covering Richard Chase in the next episode, which we'll talk about at the end of the episode. That's another reason why she was so interested in serial killers is because so much shit was going on around her. What's interesting is when people would deny their guilt, she says, this doesn't mean that their letters lack value in any way. To the contrary, denials of guilt are every bit as informative as admissions of guilt. So I find that very interesting because it is it is true that as we look through these letters and, you know, even just keeping in mind anytime you've heard the serial killers talk, what they say 
is interesting because even if it's not the truth, it's interesting to see what they lie about and what they choose to lie about and the lies that they choose to tell. She did say that when she first started the project, she was just writing for her own edification. But then later, someone suggested that she should make it into a book. And then at that point, she asked each one of them that had been writing to her if it was okay for her to publish the letters. And I guess some got really pissed at her and they were like, if we knew that you were going to re report this, then we wouldn't have fucking talked to you. And she said, I'm sorry, I didn't know when I started talking to you that I might want to do that as a book. Some of them said no, and she didn't include them. Or she does say that she did include a couple letters, but she omitted their names and changed identifying information. Other than that, they're all word for word. I thought it was funny. She mentions uh, she had, not and I quote, an extremely difficult time finding information for the biographies that precede each set of letters. Every source I checked seemed to have different information. Birth dates, charges, sentences, and crimes committed differed from source to source. In some cases, even the names of victims and family members did not agree. I have made every effort to track down the most accurate information, and whenever possible, I cross-checked it with court records. Girl, do I feel your pain. It's like I wrote that myself. So I'm sure you've heard me say <laughs> that kind of thing, too. So it's, it's interesting to see someone else come upon that same problem. The format of her book is she has each serial killer is a chapter. She starts it with that biography to give you a little bit of a background on the serial killer. And then she includes the notes without any kind of commentary. So they're just note by note by note. And it has the date on it as well. And then at the end of the chapter, it actually shows a picture of what one of the letters looked like in their actual handwriting. We've got the serial killer letters with Jennifer. Now, I will tell you about the serial killer whisperer. It's the serial killer whisperer, how one man's tragedy helped unlock the deadliest secrets of the world's most terrifying killers by Pete Early. <laughs> Long name. The uh, quick synopsis is, and I quote, when Anthony Siaglia was a teenager, he suffered a traumatic brain injury, clinically died three times, and lapsed into a coma. When he awoke, he was a much different person. His brain injury had dramatically affected his personality. Afflicted by uncontrollable rages, he became bored and housebound. On a whim, he began writing to serial killers and soon was exchanging letters with more than 30 notorious murderers. So yeah, <laughs> that's definitely a little different than uh, Jennifer's uh, experience. While Jennifer's book was just, like I said, it was biographies, then the letters, and that's pretty much it. This book actually tells a story. It takes you through Anthony, his experience, you know, through the injury and, and then how he started writing serial killers. And then it has the serial killer letters peppered in. So it's not quite as cut and dried. Like you couldn't just look and say, okay, here are all of Gore's letters. Here are all of Shawcross's letters. I had to go through and label it. So basically, I didn't read every single word. If there were letters from Shawcross, I didn't really read all of it. There's some other sections I didn't read just because it was letters by other serial killers, and I wanted to save that for when I researched them to keep it fresh. I mostly read about gore, although I did at least, um, as I was gleaning through it and reading through, I did try to keep track of where Tony was in his progress and his adventure so I can share it with you. My primary goal for this episode was to compare what David Allen Gore said to Jennifer versus what he said to Tony in the letters. 
the thing is, in the serial killer whisperer, it, whereas Jennifer's had the dates that the letters were written, this was a span of, what, like 15 years? It's not always clear exactly when the letters were written, the time frame. Ideally, it would be best if I could say, okay, well, in 1997, he said this to Jennifer, and in that same year, he said this to Tony. But I can't do that close of a comparison because um, I thought it would be interesting to see if, oh, well, in 97, he said this, but then apparently he felt this different way in 2000. So he said this. That would add a nice layer to it, I think. But I don't have that luxury. So, <laughs> so we'll go with uh, what I got. The Serial Killer Letters came out in 1998 and The Serial Killer Whisperer came out in 2012. The way that I'm going to do it is first I'm going to talk about things that Gore actually said in the letters and compare them. And then after that, I'm going to talk about how he spoke to her versus how he spoke to him. So it's kind of like two parts. In Whisperer, Gore said that he snuck into people's houses when he was young. He was never abused when he was growing up. He would have sex with women when they were drunk or passed out. He tried to fuck his mother-in-law. He went on about how horny he was and how hard it was to get laid. So that's why he would have to... I guess not many women were willing to fuck him. So that's why he would have to have sex with them when they were drunk or passed out. And then the reason he wanted to um, have intercourse with his in-law is that he was just Randy. And she was there. But apparently it, he did not succeed. A note that I thought was interesting is he specified that he oversaw 1,200 acres of groves. So that should give you some kind of idea of the space that we're dealing with. And some groves were 400 acres. So if you wonder, like, why maybe it took a while for bodies to be found or how they could have gotten away with it for so long, it's because they're dealing with 1,200 acres. So that's a vast amount of places to hide people and to have nefarious activity. Gore mentioned that he was a big fan, as he says, of Asians. And when Tony asked him how many Asian women he had killed, he said three, which is interesting because we only know of the two Lings and then I don't know of a third one. So that must be a third victim that we don't know about. He goes into keeping souvenirs of women's hair. And he compares it to keeping deer antlers. Though he wasn't sure why he chose hair. Although I think he answered his own question. Is, you know, if uh, hunters keep deer antlers, then, you know, women don't have antlers. So you take their hair. Seriously, though, I don't know. He didn't have any kind of thing where, where he would say, When I was little, I'd, my mom would strangle me with her hair. And so I wanted scalp women. So there was nothing like that. He didn't seem to understand why the hair was such a, a nice trophy for him. He kept tools in his truck, such as gun, rope, and tape. The biggest rush was not the sex, but the capture. So that's another big telling thing about looking at his MO and his motivation, where he was not excited for the finale. Well, I guess the finale would be killing, but he wasn't really the reason for kidnapping them was not just for sex it's for the rush and the adrenaline of the actual capture of the woman so once he has them obviously he enjoyed that part but what was most important seemed to be the actual kidnap i had mentioned in the last episode that he often had a jar of vodka with him and he goes into more detail 
and serial killer whisperer where he would not commit a crime without alcohol. There was not a crime that he committed when he was not under the influence, and he called it, quote-unquote, Dutch courage. I thought it was interesting that he noted, the more murders you do, the more careless you become. Which, I mean, it makes sense that, you know, when you get comfortable with something that kind of let the details slide, you're not as on edge. And that's particularly interesting because Bundy makes a reference to that as well, where at first you're very careful about everything you do, and then you misplace something, and that's what eventually gets you caught. He gives details about killing a woman, and he refers to her as an Indian woman, which it looks like he meant Native American. And later, it turns out a woman who was missing her daughter was contacted by Tony, and Tony gave her the details. Well, maybe not all of the details, but he basically said, Gore told me this. I think this could have been your daughter. And so the woman was able to get closure. They, he didn't have proof, but the mother was like, you know what, this sounds exactly like her. I can finally have peace knowing what happened. Like, she can finally have closure. He goes into detail about a woman in her late 40s that begged her not to do her in her, I'm quoting, not to do her in her ass. I guess she had a thing against being screwed there. Well, you can guess, I banged her good and even used the big dildo up her ass that I kept in the orange grove and she lost it. At first, <laughs> sorry, when he said she lost it, at first I'm like, how did she lose the dildo? But then I realized he meant that she lost it, like she got upset and freaked out, and that makes more sense. He said, I think she was relieved when I finally choked her to death, because this had gone on for hours. And that's one where we don't, he didn't give any other details. I don't know who that was. I don't know if she ever came forward at any point in time. And I, it could be a big old lie. Who knows? But it is interesting that his, he is willing to give more details about victims that he hadn't really spoken of before or that we don't know the details of before. I had not seen reference before in other sources, but he said that he took dozens of pics of his kills, some in the midst of torture, and that he had a stash of pictures. There is a point towards the end of the book where they're actually looking for the pictures. He told Tony exactly where it was. As far as I know, the pictures were never found. So that's an example of some of the information that Gore divulged about himself in the letters to Tony in The Serial Whisperer. In The Serial Killer Letters, Gore said, In every murder committed, I was drinking. Never once did I murder without first drinking. So there again we see he's steadfast and insistent that he drank a lot and that he never committed a murder without drinking. Whether that is true or not, that is the story that he wants to show. If that's true, that's similar to Dahmer because Dahmer would be drinking. Although I think the difference is, I think Dahmer really did not like the actual act of killing. And I think it freaked him out, what his compulsions were leading him to. And so he would drink because he knew that he was going to do it, but he didn't really like doing it. I think his drinking was probably more of a coping mechanism. I think Gore just liked to drink because as you'll see in these letters is he liked to rape and kill. I don't think that it was used as a crutch like, oh, I was drinking and that's why I did it. If I wouldn't have been drinking, I wouldn't have ever done these things. I think it's an interesting thing that he mentions it all the time because I, I think that maybe he is trying to put that out there a little like, oh, I was drinking when this happened. So it's a little bit in, in there to cushion it for people or as an excuse an interesting detail that I don't believe I'd seen before is that he claims, if I liked a woman on a personal level and I considered her a friend, she was off limits and I would even be protective of her. So that's one of his standards and we'll hear about more of those standards as we go. He said he had a high sex drive 
but he never cheated on his wife. And I quote, I didn't. And I still don't believe in being unfaithful. I was raised with high morals, I guess. And it wasn't because I didn't have opportunities. So hold that. We'll put a pin in that for a moment. And I'll tell you this next tidbit before we go back to that one. He had a trailer, as I discussed in the last episode, in one of the groves. And he called it his lair. When I would bring my victims to destroy them, this trailer had a double bed in which I attached eye holes at each corner so I could tie a girl with her legs spread and bent backward up over her head. It had a closet and dresser drawer where he kept tools, including a rubber dildo 18 inches long, 2 and 3 fourths inches in diameter. I'd literally inflict as much pain on a girl I could. I would hurt them like I was hurting. It was during this time Donna left me, took our sons, and vowed never to let me see them. Now, I'm pondering over the phrasing when he says it was during this time that Donna left me. Because it wasn't after Donna left me, took our sons. It was during this time. According to himself, he never cheated on his wife. But he was apparently raping women. So this is another big moment when you're looking at David Gore's psyche. I guess that's the right word. Or when you're looking at him. Is that... To him, raping a woman is not cheating. Let that sink in. So this is, again, where we see how mental gymnastics are done easily sometimes with these serial killers. They're able to make leaps and bounds that kind of befuddle the rest of us, I would say. Which I think is another reason why we're fascinated. You've heard of, you know, if they're in another zip code, then it doesn't count. You know, the cutesy, things like that. Which, in a weird way, I guess... It kind of makes sense that if you're taking it from someone, it's not cheating because they weren't willing. But if they were willing, then it would actually have been an affair, I guess. Really not 100% on that one. It could be because he's still having sex, whether the partner's willing or not. So you'd think that would still qualify as cheating. And it would actually be worse if the partner isn't willing Obviously, that's not the way that he thought about the thing. But again, these are standards. He has standards. He has standards of, if I liked a woman and consider her a friend, I wouldn't touch her. Which, actually, (laughs) he says that he did want to abduct his sister-in-law and things like that. So, not sure how much I buy that. It might have just been at the moment that's the thing that he felt. And maybe he did feel that at first. Maybe there were times that he did feel protective of women that he knew. And then maybe there are other times when he was just like, fuck it, I don't care. So maybe that's not a completely untruthful thing that he was saying at that time. But he does feel that he has standards. So that is interesting. One more comment on the layer. Basically, he did his hunting during his working hours. While he's driving around inspecting the groves, he usually was really just hunting women. So if he did find a woman while he's working, and I quote, if... During the course of the day, I did abduct a woman. I took her to my lair and do her. And by that evening, she was dead and disposed of. And again, this is, uh, his phrasing is telling and disturbing. Because it's, first it's so like, yeah, it's like, oh, you know, if I saw a nice pair of shoes, I would go buy them and then I'd wear them later. No big deal. And then also it's just so, like something you would do often. So, like, if this happened during the day, then I would do it this way. So it's kind of like, well, you know, if I'm driving by the grocery store, 
I'll just pick up the groceries. Which also implies to me that it happened frequently. It might not, maybe I'm reading into it, but it sounds to me like he probably did this quite a few times. Or he could be making it sound bigger than it is. So maybe he didn't actually do that a whole lot and he's just trying to sound big and bad. But if it's true, it's pretty fucked. And it makes me wonder how many women he actually did kill. Moving from just Gore himself, in The Serial Killer Whisperer, Gore talks about her, his relationship with Fred. He goes into the first time boundaries were crossed with Fred and him. Fred's mom, Midge, was walking around in a see-through blouse. Her nips were showing, and Fred said, How would you like to suck those? Because, of course, that's what you would say when you see your mom and her breasts. And I just, I'm cringing as I'm saying these words. That that's shows how they had a very open and diverse relationship. When Tony asked Gore if it was just Gore's idea or if it was all Waterfield's idea or what, Gore said it was both of their ideas, that they worked as a team. Now, sometimes they would go solo, but they always told each other all about it. They did the play-by-play, -play, but for the most part, they would work together. One of the ways that they would work together is if you remember Waterfield had his own garage where he would fix cars and stuff. So if there was a woman that needed a ride home because her car was in the shop and getting fixed, they would say, oh, we'll give you a ride home. And then they'd look at each other and, you know, do like the wink, wink, nod, nod, not as good as a wink to a blind bat. And then that would be the signal of, okay, Gore, get in the car. Uh, we're going to go violate this woman. I don't think that's a smart business tactic because you're not going to get repeat business if you keep raping all of your people that you're trying to fix your cars. I mean, if you kill them, especially, that's definitely not. That's just, it's bad business is all that I'm saying. They would drive along the coast, which actually went the length of the county and had dozens of secluded beach areas and trails. So if you think of all the groves, so they've got all these groves and they have access to dozens of secluded beach areas and trails. So this is like serial killer heaven, where they can just run amok and do what they want to do with lots of places to do it. He said they would drive a couple hundred miles on Interstate 95, and we'd get off at every often on-ramp. So this is a new scary dimension. They'd drive a couple hundred miles. So they also had an interstate that they would just drive on and get off and on exits. So they have a huge section that they can play with, and it frightens me. And I mentioned in the last episode that one of the cops was like, we didn't know of any other missing women in the area, so I don't know if there really are any other women. I wouldn't be surprised, but at least there's none right around here. So I think it's interesting that they apparently limited how much they did in their actual hometown, their actual town that they were in, and they expanded it. So what's scary to me is all these open cases that might be in these other areas and no one has any idea. They would tell their families that they were going hunting or fishing and they would take off for the weekend. If they picked up a girl on Friday, they took her to the trailer. On Saturday, they got a new one. And then Sunday was cleanup. So they had their little schedule down. And this makes me wonder when he says things like this, if this happened frequently, because the way that he makes it sound is, well, we have a pattern. So, you know, we take off a weekend and we grab a girl and then we grab another girl and, and we clean everything up and, and then we just start our week again. 
And in the meantime, he's still cruising around looking for women during his work hours. It could just be that they had a pattern, but it was whenever they actually had some extra free time. So maybe it was every few months they would take the weekend off and, you know, or maybe like twice a year they would take a weekend off. So it might not be as frequent as it sounds, but even if it is like twice a year, that's still incredibly frightening. And especially if they're picking up two girls a weekend, the more that he speaks is the more that I get uncomfortable. Supposedly there was a moment when, when Gore and Waterfield were at Waterfield's shop they had a woman in there and they were ready, getting ready to abduct her and then have their way with her when Waterfield's mom walked in and she's like, hey, why haven't you called your mom lately? I don't know, whatever moms say. They were like, damn it, mom, because moms ruin fun. That's why I'm not a mom. So they were so mad that they talked about killing Fred's mom. They agreed that if she ever interrupted again, they would kill her. And it's funny because Gore was like, you know, I kind of thought, I, you know, I, I want to kill her. But I didn't want to say anything to Fred because that's his mom. But then I guess Fred was like, God, I just want to kill her. I want to kill her because she ruined my fun. I mean, they already talked about how when they were younger that Fred was okay with him wanting, Gore wanting him to suck his mom's tits. So, I mean, if you're willing to do that, then, you know, why not be willing to kill her as well? I don't know. It, anything goes. He claims that Fred was the one who lured them in to their snare. And I quote, it was my cousin was the one who lured them into our snare. Once they were there, they were like bugs caught in a web. Smile. He wrote the word smile. And somehow it just makes it douchier than just doing a smiley face. It's saying the word smile. Just, it makes me hate him more. <sighs> And that's just not even acknowledging the fact that he puts smile after talking about luring a woman into his web to kill them and rape them. It's, he puts smile. He would, he said that sometimes one of them would wait inside the house for a woman. And I guess one would wait outside. And then when the woman would come home, then they would attack them. But some didn't come home. And I quote, if they had come home, it would have been over for them because we were waiting wonder about those women and wish they knew what almost happened to them. It makes me so mad. At least he didn't end it with smile. It really just, I wonder about those women and wish they knew what almost happened to them. It's not enough that he was planning on doing something and that they almost had something done to them, but he wishes that they knew. So he still needs to he still gets some kind of perverse pleasure from how upset and damaging that would be to the woman to know that she was almost raped and possibly killed. He told a story about a woman from out of town getting her car fixed. They tied her up. They gagged her, put her in the van, took her to the trailer, quote, spent hours working on her. After we were spent, we found a good spot and disposed of everything. Then they cleaned up the car and they took it two counties away and put it in a mall lot. Apparently he told this to the cops and he even told the cops where she was buried, but he claims they didn't pursue it. I'm not sure if that's true. I wouldn't necessarily be surprised because, as I said, the cops had basically said, we've got what we need and they may not have had the resources to look. For all I know, maybe they did look into it and it didn't turn into anything. And this could just be another thing that he's saying just to be more interesting to his reader. Speaking of saying things that may just be interesting to the reader, they plan to kidnap a busload of cheerleaders. 
So according to David, they had this plan that they were going to get this bus and they were going to like disable the bus the cheerleaders were on on the way to their football game and convince them to get on their bus and they'd give them a ride. But instead they would take them someplace into one of the groves and then they'd have a whole busload of cheerleaders that they could take advantage of. The big flaw in the plan is they couldn't find a bus. It's it's funny because it seems so outlandish to have a goal of let's kidnap a bunch of cheerleaders because it just seems completely unfeasible that two dudes could be able to, I don't know, maybe they could carry off. Maybe it would have, their plan would have worked. If they would have just channeled the energy into making that a pornographic film, then yeah, that sounds great. Is you have a film where you get a bunch of horny cheerleaders on a bus and they willingly have sex with people. That would be great. Let's do that. But instead, they had to plan on a bad version of that. But thank God they didn't get it done. Don't know if they actually tried to implement the plan or if, again, that was another thing that Gore said. But the fact that he said it is disturbing. So as you see from Serial Killer Whisperer, Gore is very open about Fred. He talks about Fred a lot. However, I noticed in the Serial Killer letters that he does not mention Fred for quite a while. And that's particularly striking because that was the first thing that I read. I had read some of the little details in different serial killer books, you know, and those are like basically blurbs. But when I was reading these in-depth letters that Gore wrote, I noticed he kept saying, I did this, and he was not mentioning Fred. So that was throwing me off. Like, I know that they were supposed to have done it together, so it's kind of weird that he's not mentioning Fred. Then he does mention him, and he says... He is someone I truly do feel sorry for. He has denied everything from day one. He has totally convinced his family that he's an innocent victim. Fred has claimed he's innocent for so long, he actually believes he is himself. I believe with all my heart, Fred is a pathological liar. These aren't the only cases him and I are convicted of. Him and I were stalking, abducting, raping, and killing for a very long time. He is as brutal and as violent as I once was. He's raped at least five or seven women that I know of. When him and I were arrested, there were a couple of women who came forward and identified Fred as the man who raped them. Fred, I don't believe, has a conscience, so I do feel sorry for him. He has all his family totally convinced he's innocent, and I'm making up wild stories about him. But it really doesn't bother me, because I feel I'm a better person inside, and I can live with a clear conscience. I had the state attorney himself tell me I was much more human than Fred. Anyway, I do pray for him. And like I said, you can get all the information and testimonies of people who have had contact with Fred at the sheriff's department. I had my own inner motives for the things I'd done, but I don't know what Fred's motives were. I like the smugness and the fact that the state attorney himself said, David, you're just much more human than Fred. Personally, I don't know that really says much. I guess if you're looking at it comparatively, it's better to be a little more human of a serial killer than another and I, I like, it's the state, attor the state attorney. So, okay, an attorney, a lawyer told you that you are human. Don't know that that's always the best judge, but you know, it's easy to pick on attorneys. I don't know. I'm trying to think who would he, who could he have said that would have held more weight than the state attorney? I mean, I guess the judge, because he's judging the whole thing. That would make sense. I don't know if there's anyone else really. I mean... Uh, a minister, I guess the minister, he did become religious in prison. So maybe if the minister said, I guess that would hold some weight. But at any rate, he's a little smug there when it comes to Fred. It, and it's 
it's especially interesting if you consider that Fred is doing less time than him. So Fred kept himself mostly out of trouble. Like, he didn't really have much evidence against him. You'd think he, Fred would be the smug one. But no, it's David's able to turn that around and twist it and turn it. As for when they started their activity together, and I quote, I really don't know at exactly what point Fred and I started doing things. The very first thinking I can remember that linked us, so to speak, was one day when we were teenagers. Fred was over at my house and he asked me if he could rape my sister. And I think from then on, we discussed rape and girls and whatever. We'd always talked about doing abnormal things, but never really carried it out. So when I began having troubles and anger became my force, once again, Fred and I started talking and he told me that he had raped and killed a couple of women and he described everything. And I can remember listening to him and thinking how I'd like to kill because of the anger in me. And so he became the catalyst, so to speak. To be honest, I really don't know if in fact Fred ever did rape and kill, but at the time it really didn't matter to me. He was fueling something inside me, and that's all I cared about. In the other book, he says the first time that him and Fred had that weird moment of acknowledging taboo subjects was when Fred's mom walked in the room and they saw her boobs and he said, you know, would you like my mom, basically. In this one, it's when Fred says, can I rape your sister? I don't know that it matters which one was truly the first time because I, I don't want to... It's easy to want to hold them under the microscope and say, oh, well, you said this and this and this. But frankly, they are human. So sometimes our memories aren't great. And I'm sure that I've said, well, the first time this happened was that. And then later, I, you know, I got confused and said, well, the first time might have been this. And when it comes to like the first time something happened, maybe, eh, I don't know. But I think it's important to note that he has a couple different things that could have been the first time that they talked about something. That means the first time was not that landmark big moment in his life when his eyes were opened and everything changed that it was emblazoned on him like this was the first time that I remember this opened up doors for me so it was obviously just kind of like yeah it's just something it just kind of happened and they had that happen often enough that he couldn't remember which thing it was so they would talk about it enough that he can't remember well this is the first time we talked about it so that's disturbing that's the theme of this episode is Disturbing David Allen Gore. Another really big thing to note, if you caught it, is he said, I don't even know if he did rape any women or kill any women. The thing to take away from it is whether Fred had or not, it's supposedly the thing that really motivated him to start raping and killing as well. Which might be the case because, as, as stated in the last episode, he did look up to Fred, and Fred was the outgoing one, and Gore was kind of shy. So it might be that Fred would have been the one. It makes sense that if in other areas he looked up to him and would do, would be motivated by what Fred suggests or does, then it makes sense. The first time that Fred encouraged David to do something bad, they were hunting with their moms. Fred said to turn their guns on them and make them take off their clothes. But David said no, and then they dropped it. And then after that, they started talking about actually raping. What strikes me is that all of their first, at least according to Gore, all of their first experiences revolved around their moms and sisters, which is especially striking because 
as I stated before, he claimed, oh, if I, if I knew someone unlike them, then they would be protected. I'd feel protective of them. Now, he, as far as we know, he did not actually ever rape or molest his mom or sisters, although Fred did try to molest David's sister. But it's still interesting that that's where he started, as he started thinking of his own family. Because even though Fred had a different mom, that's still his aunt. So it's still family. They're still blood-related. So that's interesting that they start there, but then they expand out. And that's where they really start to rape and kill is outside the family. Although Fred might have raped his sister, Connie. He tried to get Dave to rape his sister. He had two sisters. So while Fred was in the room with Connie, Dave was in the room with his other sister, and Dave didn't end up doing anything. But then, and Connie came out of the room and was freaked out, but never really said. So it's possible that he, and the thing again is he tried. So there's that effort of starting with those close to you. David noticed that they had set it up where he would always pull the gun. And Fred was usually the bystander at first. So Fred would just kind of let the, you know, lure, lure the girls in and David would pull the gun. So then later he was thinking, you know, I'm not sure, but I think he planned it this way just in case. I don't know if you remember, I had mentioned they had a friend, I believe Phil Williams, who used to go hunting with them. And Phil said that Fred was like, let's go kill this pig. It was somebody's domestic pig. And we'll take your truck and your gun. And as Phil's doing this, he's like, wait a second, I'm the one who's going to get in trouble for this because there's no proof that, I mean, you were basically just along for the ride. You could just say that I made you do it or you didn't know it was happening or what, you know, it's my truck and my car and my gun. That's kind of uh, an interesting note to throw in there because you can see that he did the same thing with David as David always pulled the gun. And he does say when they're caught, Fred's like, look, you know, when he pulled a gun on those girls, I had no idea it was going to happen. I didn't think he was serious because he didn't do stuff like that. You know, it's I didn't know what was going on. So Fred was a wily one. In Serial Killer Whisperer, Gore does talk about that first kidnap attempt where the woman was driving alone on the highway. They shot at her tires, but she escaped and no charges were filed because the cops didn't have enough information to go on. But he also mentions another time when they picked up a woman at a bar they raped her, but didn't kill her. The woman reported it, but then she wound up not co going to court and the charges were dropped. I don't recall seeing that in anything else, so I'm not sure that how true that is. But yet again, it's another tidbit that he throws out there in the serial killer whisperer to his buddy Tony, where he's giving him information that maybe hasn't been found elsewhere. Now I'm going to go over the actual murders if as they were mentioned in the books. So in Whisperer... He said that he stalked Ying Huangling, 17-year-old, February 1981. He flashed his deputy badge at her. She said, take me home. You know, I want to talk to my mom. And she was Vietnamese. She didn't speak very good English. So they go home. The mom's there. And no one else is there. I'm sorry. They're from Taiwan. I think I said Vietnam earlier. I apologize. They're from Taiwan. So he pulls a gun on them, takes them to their orange grove, tied them to trees facing one another, called Fred, and while he waited, he raped them. So this is interesting because I believe this is the first notice, the first mention I've seen of both of them being tied to trees. Usually it's just the mom. So in this one, both are tied to trees, and then he rapes them. Fred shows up. Fred thinks the mom is too old. So he doesn't touch her other than to fix the rope so she will strangle while she's watching them rape her daughter. 
They killed both of them. So the mother strangled on the tree. Then they killed the daughter. They chopped them both up, put them in 55-gallon drums, and buried them. There is a note that supposedly the mother or daughter's hair was actually found in David Gore's car. In serial killer letters... Gore says he only got charged because he confessed. His lawyer told him if he didn't confess, there weren't, wasn't any evidence to convict him. But I couldn't. It was time to change my heart. So I confessed and I told them. I got two life sentences. Fred said he didn't know what I was talking about. So they couldn't charge him. And he raped both of the Lings and helped kill them. So I think you'll notice right off the bat, well, he says there was no evidence. So I'm not sure about the hair being found in the car. That's the first time I saw that. But that's what he says in the Whisperer book. He also said in Whisperer that Fred refused to touch the mom. But in Serial Killer Letters, he tells Jennifer that he raped both of the Lings. So again, you have two conflicting statements. He goes into a little more detail. He's consistent with he showed the girl the badge, she grabs the mom, takes them to the grove. Except at that point when he takes them to the grove, he says he tied up their hands and feet cut the mom's clothes off, pulled out the mom's tampon and put it in the daughter's mouth, cut off the daughter's clothes, exposed his dick, the mom went crazy, so he shot her four times in the head, slid the body near the daughter, slit her throat, then he couldn't get hard, so he put the daughter's panties in her mouth with duct tape around it, put her in the toolbox, cut the mom's head off, put it in a garbage bag, which he put in the truck, he cut off her breasts, put in a bag in the truck, and then he gutted, dismembered, and buried the rest of the mom's body. His wife was out of town. Again, his wife, he was married. He's raping someone, but he did not cheat. So since his wife is out of town, he takes the young girl home, ties her to a bed, take pictures of her. He couldn't get hard. So he goes and he cuts up the mom's head. He drinks some beers, and then he gets motivated again. And then he rapes the girl. And he says to Jennifer in this letter, he's, I quote sort of big. And when he came, it, quote, filled her up. I'm going to give everyone a second. Clear the uh, vomit that just uh, popped up in your mouth. Yeah. So again, we see the, uh, where he's very smug and he's, oh, you know, I'm, I'm kind of big. I don't want to brag, but, um, you know. And then he goes on with more details, such as he molested her with a broom handle, anally and vaginally. He took pics and then he straddled her chest and strangled her. Took her to the bathroom, slit her throat, cut off her head, dismembered her, put her in the truck, and then buried her in the grove. And he says, that was the first kill, so to speak. That is an important detail later. But there are so many more details in that one where he says in Serial Killer Whisper that they chopped them up both right there in the grove. That there was no moving her back and forth. But yet, in this other version, he tells Jennifer that he did all this other stuff. Now, with Barbara Beyer and Angelica Lavely in Serial Killer Whisperer, they had one of friends, Fred's vans with a bed in the back and carpeting. It was 1 a.m., they're on their way home, and they saw these girls. They had been out stalking. The Gore in them, not the girls. Gore pulled a gun. He got in the back and tied them up. Fred was driving. He pulls over. He gets in the back for about 20 minutes. He said he was done and to go ahead without him. Gore promised to dispose of them. Fred raped Barbara, but not Angelica. Gore took them to the groves. Barb was on the bed, and Angelica was on the floor. He tried to get Angel to go, Angelica to go down on him. She was crying. Barbara told him to leave her alone. 
So then he had Barbara do it, and then he raped her. Apparently then he raped Angel with a dildo. He strangled Angel outside, and then, quote, did Barb, which apparently means he killed her. He collected their hair, and then he buried them. In Serial Killer Letters, he said he pulled a gun, Fred got in the back, took off their clothes, tied them up, raped them, drove to his barn, and then he told Gore to get rid of them. So Gore drove out of the grove, raped them, and killed them. So it's much more succinct, although one thing that's different is in Whisperer, he says that Gore got in the back and tied them up, but in Letters, he said Fred got in the back and tied them up. Uh, that doesn't change that in both versions, Gore does take advantage of them for a little while and that Gore does eventually kill them. It just doesn't go into the same details in Letter as it does in Whisperer. The only other murder that they really go into in both books was the Lynn Elliott and Reagan Martin. Although in Serial Killer Whisperer, they call her, they call Reagan Martin Melody Walker. So I'm not sure why that would be, unless they were trying to help her identity but I don't really understand because the serial killer letters, letters came out first and they call her Reagan or Martin. She's called Reagan Martin in the other books. So I don't know why she's called Melody Walker in Serial Killer Whisperer. At any rate, the details he gives is that the girls were hitchhiking to the beach. Once they got in the car, Gore offered them pot, but he pulled out a gun instead. He, they were handcuffed. Lynn mentions her boyfriend, Tim McCullers, and it turns out they knew him. They had gone fishing with him and his uncle. And then one of Fred's relatives drove by and waved. Taken to Gore's parents' house, they were put in separate rooms with their feet bound. Gore said he forced Lynn to oral sex and Fred raped her. At some point, Fred left, worried about being seen by that relative before. Gore raped Melody. Would go from, he would go from room to room. And he told her that he was going to keep them there for days. However, Lynn broke free. Her hands were still bound and Gore hurt her, trying to get out. He put Melody in a closet, ran out after Lynn. They were both naked. He shot her twice in the head, then put her in the trunk of the car. He heard the police scanner, and he knew that cops were on their way. So he took Melody to the attic, held a knife to her throat, and told her to be quiet. He, they heard the cops talking outside and then in the house, and then Gore came down, and Melody was saved. And she actually picked Gore out of a lineup. He does confirm Michael Rock witnessed it. He was a young boy that was um, driving on his bicycle riding on his bicycle that saw what happened. He David actually called 911 himself, but he was trying to throw them off his trail. So he was like, oh, I saw this girl running in this grove over here, and I don't know who it was. And then he hangs up, and then he calls back, and he says some other detail, like, oh, she's over there now. And he did it like three times. When the 911 caller looked up, the 911 dispatcher looked up the address, they saw who it was, and then the cops quickly figured out you know he's obviously just trying to throw us up a scent because this boy just reported to the cops that they saw someone get killed in front of that house so they pieced it together pretty quickly even though david was trying to be clever in serial killer letter he says it was predetermined that we would pick a woman up and if they were okay fred would give me a nod and i would pull a gun on them this is exactly how it happened with lynn and reagan so that's just a confirmation again that they have had a plan of how they would do things in a pattern and that they did that with Reagan and Lynn. The difference in this one is that he said that an angel had held his hands when the cops came. So even though he was going to go outside and give up, that there was a part of him that was hesitant to, and he felt a force holding his arms in the air, and that he knew an angel was making him hold his hands up, that was holding his hands up, 
and that it was time for him to repent and to confess and that he knew that it was an angel. So that's a, a new detail that I had not seen before. It's particularly interesting that he did not mention that to Tony in a serial killer whisper because Tony was religious. He very specifically talked about feeling like God had a purpose for his life since he had since he had survived the accident. So I find it interesting that he told it to that story to her, but not to Tony, which there is the possibility that I'm not seeing all of the letters that were sent to both people. So I guess it's possible that he said it in the other book, but I would think that that would have been brought up as some kind of proof that maybe Gore was manipulating him, but you never know. As far as the reasoning behind the murders and his motivation, in Serial Killer Whisperer, he focuses on the incident that happened when he was a toddler. He fell in a fire ant bed outside. He got stung all over. He had convulsions and a fever 102 to 103. And I quote, They said because my temperature got so high, it literally altered my brain. So there are several times he goes back and says, well, my brain's not right. So I really think that's why I did these things. Because I did some crazy things. I did some very violent things, and that's really the only way you could explain it. He also says that he feels it's in his genes and that he's powerless against it. He points out the fact that his cousin, by blood, Fred, was similar. That he had the same kind of inclinations and that they both acted out on those. So it's obviously his genes. So he was powerless. In Serial Killer Letters, it is all anger. He just keeps going on and on about how it's because his wife left him and took his sons. And he's so, he's so angry at his wife, but he couldn't kill his wife because of how damaging it would be to his sons. So he killed these other women. So here, I'll go in more into it with a quote. Not a day goes by, I don't regret what I did. In a sense, and in my mind, I was killing her. When I killed a woman, I also believed that is why my crimes were so brutal. You know how you hear of people who get so mad at someone and they overkill them? I believe this is what was going on inside me. I had so much anger and bitterness boiling inside of me that I didn't just stop at killing women. I wanted to totally destroy her in every sense of the way. I couldn't kill my ex-wife, and I believe there was something inside me that was so deeply connected to my sons that I saw if I killed her, I would in a sense be killing them, if that makes any sense. So I turned my rage on women in general. This is the way I chose my release. That was what he reiterated again and again and again in the letters to Jennifer. That leads me to really starting to analyze the way that he spoke to Jennifer versus the way that he spoke to Tony and if there was indeed a difference. Right off the bat, talking about his motivations to kill, it's interesting that when he speaks to someone who had a brain injury that has anger and impulse control issues because his brain is truly damaged and that Tony has said that he feels powerless and that his anger comes and he feels like he can't control it. So what Gore locks onto is, oh, hey, you know, I had a brain thing. And then he feels it's in his genes and he's powerless. So the things that Tony is giving to him, he's feeding right back to him. So when he's talking to Tony, those are the reasons. It's not my wife left me, so I'm angry. And that's why I was motivated to kill. It was, well, there's obviously something that I couldn't control and there's something that's just wrong with me. Whereas when he's talking to Jennifer, who is a mother and a wife who's trying to understand why things are happening and she's reaching out saying, I want to know why. And even though Tony's saying, I want to know why, I think he locks onto the fact that Jennifer is a mother and he locks onto those. So when he talks to her, he's responding to her as a woman and mother. So he focuses on 
well, the reason I did this is because my wife killed me and she can relate to, well, I love my sons. So he figures, well, she's a mom. You know, I think that's, that's, it's interesting that that's what he latched onto with her. Whether he did this on purpose, I don't know. I would be inclined to think that. I'm going to get into a little bit more here and maybe we can flesh that out some more. I noticed in Serial Killer Letters that given the letters that she presented, he started out by finding out how much she wanted to know. And he kept saying that, you know, I'm really trying to help. I'm trying to do better. I feel really bad. I don't have an, and I quote, I don't really have an easy time talking about what happened, especially with a stranger. And then after he divulged, she's like, no, 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 it's okay. I want you to share everything with me. I'm not going to judge you. Please just be open with me. And he says, you know, I understand if you don't want to talk to me anymore. Um, and oh, you know, I'm working with several law enforcement groups to understand how murderer thinks so I can prevent this from happening more. He's helping them know what kind of signs to help look for serial killers. He wants to help save a life. He says, I guess why I'm able to talk about my crimes is because I know I'm not that person anymore. I guess she made a comment about serial killers possibly lying and that she stopped writing to some of them because of it. And he says, I can understand you ceasing to write serial killers because of the lies. It's sad to say, but I've met a lot of men in here who believe they have done nothing wrong and will feed you a line of crap a mile long. I really don't care about false people. And in a sense, they live in their own sort of prison. So again, we see the smugness. We see the odd mental gymnastics of where it's possible that he's feeding miles of crap to her, but he's t condemning other people who do that. So it's very interesting to see the way that he can kind of spin and unironically say things. Because I really, I don't know if he is so self-deluded that he really thinks that he's open and honest and he doesn't feel that he's being manipulative or feeding, catering to what he thinks they want to hear, as opposed to just saying it's, um, well, he goes into detail about how he'll be open with her and that he understands he did horrible things. And then he prefaces it or follows it with remorse or reiterations of how he's trying to help. But Again, there, there's still elements of bragging and self-importance, even when he's trying to be contrite. And then, like, the I'm sort of big. And later he says, I pretty much could get whoever I wanted. It may take me several attempts. So there's always a little bit of bragging to it. And even while he's saying, I regret it and it's terrible, it really feels hollow. Because he keeps throwing out that kind of, that language, he seems still seems kind of proud, even though he supposedly knows it was disgusting and it's the wrong thing. It's almost like when he's going into detail with her, he's going into detail supposedly so he can show her that he can be trusted. So I will give you these details, even though I'm physically uncomfortable and emotionally uncomfortable with telling you the things that I did to this woman, I will tell you because I, I trust you and I want you to trust me and I'll reveal myself to you. So I'll give you the details like I have a big dick and you know, it's hard for me to admit, but there it is. And I also gutted a woman and you know, and it's not pretty. But I liked the way that it felt. And did I mention I'm kind of big? And did I mention that the state attorney told me that I was a pretty good human, or at least a better human than Fred? So you see how it's all kind of tangled in there, and he slips it in there, and it's kind of subtle. So I think if you're not paying attention to it, if you want to, to believe that he's being sincere, I can see how maybe you could interpret it that way. And I think that there is, because he throws those details in there, it is like reliving it and pulling it out and bragging about it while seeming like it's not what he's doing. So even though he's saying, oh, I don't like talking about this, but let me tell you about how I cut off her ears and her tongue 
And did I mention that I stuffed a tampon into her daughter's mouth? So he goes into these very vivid details and graphic details. Like it's, I'm just telling you this because you asked me. You wanted to know this. This is what you wanted to know. I'm helping you. I'm giving you this information when I think he's really just enjoying talking about it. You can see how at the beginning he says specifically, I did not hunt women. Now, one of these reporters said that I hunted women. I guess that sells papers. But, you know, I didn't do that. Later on, he says, well... I guess you could say I hunted women. And then by the last few letters, he comes out and says, I, I, yeah, I fucking hunted women. So you can see that progression of where he was feeling her out and, you know, like, oh, well, you know, you dip your toe in and then, you know, you get your foot in and then you just throw your whole fucking body in because she was receptive. That's not necessarily an abnormal behavior because anytime you meet someone for the first time, there's an element of you're guarded. So you, you test them. You know, you don't want to throw yourself completely out there. So maybe you'll just kind of put your personality out there a little bit. And then as you get to know them, you get more comfortable. And then you're hanging out in your underwear. I don't know. I just threw that out there. I don't really hang out with my friends in my underwear. That's just what popped out. So. <laughs> but the, the basically, you're really comfortable then and you feel like you can you can confide more. So that's not necessarily abnormal, like I said. But what's funny is that with Tony, he just jumps right in right off the bat. I just think it's interesting to see how he built it up with her and just kind of started off small and then got bigger. Whereas with Tony, he just jumped right on it. It could also be that with her, he saw he did see a chance of explaining himself. There was a part of him that maybe liked the idea of getting to say his side of things. And this is his chance to show that he could be a good person. Maybe he did get saved. Maybe he is trying to help women and he can't help the douchebag side of him that still kind of brags about it, but he does feel bad about it, ultimately. I still kind of feel like he didn't really feel bad, so I'm a little leery about it. I'm a little cynical. When it comes to Serial Killer Whisperer, I'll go into a little more detail. When Tony was 15, he got into a Wave Runner accident at camp. So he was in the water. They weren't really supposed to be riding these, driving these Wave Runners. But then one got out of control and hit him in the head. So it was like his brain went, let me try to remember this. It's his brain went back in his skull and then it hit the front of the skull or it was vice versa. So basically his brain hit both the front and back. So there was lots of damage and he almost died. Well, he died three times and then they revived him. He actually, he was able to recover pretty well physically and uh, mentally. He was able to carry on his life, except it wasn't quite the same. Like I said in the beginning, he had bouts of anger. He had trouble controlling his anger and he had to live with his parents because they needed to keep an eye on him. He had a problem with depression because, you know, he couldn't function the same and he was... You know, since it happened when he was 15, he was, in a sense, he was kind of stuck in puberty, in a way. He had to be on tons of medications to try to balance everything. He went to two different therapists, and one was like, um, I think one was a therapist, and then one was a psychologist. I don't know. It's, my brain's not working. I apologize. It's one that you just talk to, and the other one can give you medication. I mean, you talk to them too, but, but one can't prescribe medication. So he had two different doctors and they were basically like, you need something to look forward to. You need, you need a hobby. He uh, happened upon murderbilia online. It, you know, things like you could buy, I think it was something like Charles Man 10 strands of Charles Manson's hair for like $3,000. And he was fascinated that that's a thing. So then he's like, well, I 
can just write to them. And, you know, they some of them have had brain injuries and they have problems with anger control and maybe they'll understand me. Maybe they can help me, you know, and then it's kind of like, oh, you know, I'll get to talk to the people that I heard about in the news. So he started writing to serial killers. He had a P.O. box at UPS and he called it the murder box. He did this for years and his parents were involved. They were leery. The mom especially was kind of worried about it, but you know, ultimately the doctors and the family figured they're all in prison. It's not like they're going to get out anytime soon and try to hunt us and just be careful about it. Don't try not to give too many personal details or whatever. And, you know, at first they didn't really see harm in it. And they thought, well, if they can, if it can help him get some kind of peace about what's happening with him, maybe he can move forward and, you know, maybe he'll even grow out of writing to them. But he was still writing them when he was 32. And he had a girlfriend, 19-year-old girlfriend named Crystal, who right off the bat, they made everything clear, you know, that he had to live with his parents. And she helped. She was an active part of his life. And she was understanding about his anger issues and everything like that. And she knew about the serial killer letters. So when the letter would come, the whole family, including his younger brother and then Crystal, his girlfriend, his mom and dad, they would sit around and they would read letters together. So it was a family activity. They also had another phone line installed that he called his murder phone, and serial killers started calling him. The way that one of the doctors described it was thusly. Tony's adolescent behavior made him more open to the killers and someone more mature. His obsessive-compulsive tendencies meant he was willing to spend hours and hours corresponding with narcissistic criminals without expecting much in return. Because of his own hyposexuality, he did not tire of the killer's endless fantasies about sex and rape. His lack of a social filter and his impaired judgment meant that he was not put off by their macabre stories of cruelty. Most of all, he was not judgmental, and because he knew what it felt like to become enraged, out of control, and an outcast, he felt a link with his new, quote, best friends. So he actually did call them best friends. He did feel that, especially like Arthur Shawcross was one that he corresponded with a lot, and he considered them his best friends. They considered them his buddies, which I think you can see how that might lead to be a problem later. Now, when Tony, when Tony is talking to Gore, he goes into, what he goes into it is like, basically he explains the situation, you know, I've had a brain injury. He's, but he has been an outcast, like all of his, since it happened when he was a teenager, none of the other teenagers really understood what he was going through. And so they all pulled away from him. So he basically lost all his friends and really just had his family. He goes at it as very enthusiastic. I mean, if you can just imagine a little kid writing to their hero and just put it in that context, because to him, it was like writing to a baseball player you know, or like a football football star or a musician. So to him, it, yes, he understood that the things they did were bad, but he could distance it because, again, like that doctor said, is he didn't have that same capacity at that point to be empathetic about it. So he would say, oh, you know, tell me the details, tell me the details. So it's like a little kid, like, oh, you know, tell me, you know, I want to talk about sports stuff. I can't, I don't know stuff about sports, but you know, tell me the details. I want to hear about game five and the world series. And I want to hear all the details. Tell me, tell me, tell me. To a serial killer, if you have someone come into the picture and like, hey, I want to know everything. And it's very obvious that they're not going to judge you and that they're eager to hear about your exploits. Then that I could see David Allen Gore being like, well, fuck yeah, I'm just going to, I'm just going to dive in. So there's no toe dipping. They're just diving right on in. Tony wrote to Gore, 
I guess I could go on and on with questions because I'm so interested in this kind of stuff. To actually be friends and communicate with somebody you can only read about in crime books or on different web pages is really something. In the beginning, I was just interested in exploring a well-known serial killer, but now it has gone so much further and we have actually developed close friendship. So there you can see how it is just like a little kid so excited. And, and then here's something else Tony said. I like it when you explain the murders in detail. It's like you have a good way of using adjectives or descriptive words to make me feel like I'm almost the one committing the crimes myself. So if that doesn't raise alarm bells, I don't know what will. It's different than saying you're very descriptive. I can see the picture that you're painting. I can see what you're saying. To specifically say, it makes me feel like I'm almost the one committing the crimes myself. That is a very dangerous point of view to have. Because then again, that, that feels like you're getting closer to towing the line to justifying being able to do it yourself. Because you're like, mm, well, he almost makes me feel like I'm doing it. I wonder what it'd be like just to do it. Now, it, granted, that could be a bigger leap than I'm referencing, but it just feels too close. So Tony says, I know I should probably judge your character for the horror you brought to many women and their families, but for some reason I can't figure it out. I just don't judge you. It bothers me, David. It's like I'm missing something because I feel that any normal person would feel sorry or in any case feel something for your victims, but I just don't. If I were to say anything about them, I would probably say it's too bad that they were in the wrong place at the wrong time. I have to admit to you, it's kind of fun to be able to, let's say, relive your adventures through your words on how it happened step by step. It is fun for you too, isn't it? Reliving what you've done. Telling me about every intimate detail. So we see that he says he's just doesn't feel it. He just doesn't feel the empathy. Like, I know I should feel it, but I just don't. To the point where he says it's too bad they were at the wrong place in the wrong time. These are all bad signs. And I know, noticed while I was reading it the first time, and he said, I have to admit, it's kind of fun to be able to relive your adventures through your words. It's fun for you too, isn't it? Reliving what you've done. Telling me about every intimate detail. So it kind of goes from that little kid to all of a sudden now it starts sounding like a teenage romance. Like it's a 15-year-old girl, you know, talking to another, talking to a boy like, oh, oh, it's naughty. You're doing, let's talk about naughty things. It's all naughty. And it, yeah, so it's bad enough that he's already starting to identify with gore and that He's feeling like di that distance and that um, lack of empathy, actually. But then it starts sliding into that. Now we have this secret together. It's this taboo thing that we can talk about. And it's just between us. And it amps up. He's talking to his therapist. And the therapist asks him if he really thought that the serial killers were his best friends. And he says, yes, without hesitating. If David Gore was sitting across from me at the breakfast table at our house, I'm not looking at him as David Gore the rapist, the murderer, the scalper. I'm looking at him as a regular guy, a friend who dropped by, and we're just talking like two friends talk, just like me and my brother talk. They wouldn't harm me. We've talked about this in our letters. They might hurt others, but not me. They care about me and would never do anything to hurt me because I'm important to them. I've asked them if they have feelings and emotions, and they do. I know they do, because I know them better than anyone, including FBI profilers. I've invested my time and personality in these people. I know them better than you. There's no way I'm quitting. 
I've spent years getting to know them, getting them to trust me, getting them to open up to me and tell me how they really are and how they really feel. And now you want me to stop? I'm not going to do that. This stuff they're writing, it's real stuff. It's how they really think and how they really feel. They aren't pretending or hiding from me. I wanted to know what made Metheny be a cannibal, and he's telling me. I wanted to know how Gore could hunt women, and he's telling me. I wanted to know how Arthur could strangle people with his bare hands, and he's telling me. You can see how deep he is into it and how it's, it really is just like a girl dating a guy or a guy dating a girl that their parents don't like. And so they're trying to say, look, this isn't healthy for you. And instead they just bear down. They just dig in deeper. And you, you really feel for him because to him, he has these big gruff guys that, yes, they did say a lot about what they did in, in some cases, but they're willing to say even more to him. So he's got, it's the classic girl liking a bad boy syndrome. You know, it's like, oh, I can save them. Or even if you can't save them, oh, but, but they're opening up to me. So I've got something. There's something about me that they need. And we have something together that no one else understands. Because they won't open up to you like they'd open up to me. And they've told me proven to me by giving me these details that they're not lying to me and they've told me they have feelings so why would why would they lie you know what's the motivation to lie and because it also threatens his being special and his relationship to them it's not just all about what he's getting from it it's what he means to them it's what he's giving to them so it, it really just digs at the root of his self-identity so it's hard for him just to say they're murderers and I should stop talking to them and, and even just to be open-minded about, hey, can you even think about, because I think they even said, like, just, can you just scale it back? You know, can you just do it for a few hours and just try to reason with them? And at first he's like, no, this is my thing. You don't understand. Later, I believe he does finally say, okay, I'll scale it back some. Because they tried to explain it to him that it's the idea of if you keep being around something negative, then it'll fill you with negativity. So sometimes you need to have something different in there to help even you out. If you're always around something that's difficult emotionally or that's negative emotionally, then it will affect you. It's not saying that because you watch a scary movie, you're going to go out and kill someone or saying that if you listen to a certain type of music, it's going to make you react a certain way. But it does make sense that if, I mean, I know that if I just binge on serial killer stuff, if I do a ton of research and I'm not really getting much else you know, because I watch scary movies, so if all that I'm doing is watching scary movies and then reading about serial killers, I do notice it affects my mood. I am a little bit darker. It does get to me at a certain point, so then I need to binge on Bob's Burgers or Archer. So you need to have a balance. Basically, they were able to convince him, at least scale it back a little bit, because you can see they finally were like, this is getting fucking scary, that you're starting to identify this much and have this much passion and identification with them. And so eventually, he doesn't stop writing them. When he had died, he felt that Jesus came to him, or God came to him and said, you don't need to die right now. I need you. You have a purpose. So when he came back, he was trying to figure out what his purpose was, and he decided it was... That if he's going to be able to talk to these serial killers, maybe he can help solve some of the cold cases and, and help in that way. So, like I said earlier, is how he got hold of that one woman and said, hey, D Gore told me about this and I think it could have been your daughter and then she got closure. So he started trying to do, to do that with it. 
in my overall view of comparing how David Alan Gore spoke to Jennifer Furio and Tony Siaglia, he was graphic in both. Ultimately, he didn't tame anything down for either either of them. It may have just taken him longer before he said things to Jennifer, but he was very graphic with both of them. He was consistent in some of his stories. And, and again, like Jennifer had said, that everything he says is indicative of something. So if we don't look at it as, well, this is obviously the truth because he said it to both of them, or this is obviously not the truth because he said something different in both cases. So we don't know which one is the truth. Ultimately, neither one could be the truth. You know, the only thing we know for sure is what the cops found. And in a lot of these cases, we don't know all the details of how he did things. Then it becomes, well, if you can't find the absolute truth, what can we learn about the person? And I think that we, what I learned is that he's self-righteous, he's smug, and I think that though he says he's reborn and he's a Christian and that he's embarrassed about what he did and that he just wants to help people out by telling what he did. I don't buy that. I think that he just likes talking about his kills. Just like when Bundy was on trial, he had the person on the stand go back through the crime scene, but there was no reason to do it. So it was odd because they were like, why are we going back through this? But it was it looked like it was just giving him a big old chubby. So he just liked talking about it. And I feel like that's how David Gore was in these letters is with either one of them, with both of them, he liked talking about what he did. And he was just more open about liking it with Tony because Tony was truly, even though Jennifer said, I'm not judging you, he knew that she still wasn't going to get it in the way that Tony got it because Tony was all in. Even though I didn't learn definitively how it really went down with the Lings and how he really killed, if he really killed that Native American woman, or I don't know definitively which thing is the truth based on reading both these books. It definitely created a, a more interesting picture and I got more depth of what Gore is like and what he was thinking. I'll end with this because this is uh, particularly annoyed me, is in Serial Killer Letters, I had said earlier that David Alan Gore said the Lings were, that was my first murder, so to speak. And that's a very interesting qualifier to put on there, so to speak. Because it makes it sound like, well, there's a technicality that makes that not true. And in Serial Killer Letters, he says his first kill was his wife's sister, Joanne. He said he was drinking with her. They had been friendly. So even after the divorce, they were they, they would hang out or they were t would talk. So one day he came over and they were hanging out. Well, then all of a sudden he saw his ex-wife in her and he snapped. So he gets behind her, puts his arm around her neck, squeezes, thinks she's dead. He feels empty. And then he feels power. And then she's still alive. So then he ties her to the bed and rapes her. And then he realizes, well, you know, I've got to kill her. Now I'm going to warn you. It gets graphic and gory. And the interesting thing to note is that he spells gory, G-O-R-E-Y. And I think we all know gory is spelled G-O-R-Y. And his last name is Gore. So I love that he threw in there, and I don't know that he did it intentionally, and how perfect it is that gory with that E in there is just perfect. So he put her in a toolbox, took her to the grove, hoisted her from the rafters by her ankles, sliced her throat, and that's when she dies. He skins her like a deer, cuts her head off, guts her, cuts off her flesh, cuts up her bones, and buries her. And then he realized, I want to kill some more. And that's when he starts 
riding the highways looking for hitchhikers. And so my big qualm with that is I have never seen anything about her sister being dead or missing. I have not seen anything anywhere in any of my research that his wife's sister went missing or that he killed her. He was not in any of the charges. I haven't seen anything. So to me, the logical thing is that's a load of shit. So that is the crap a mile long that he's talking about other serial killers. Because it's really hard for me to believe that his wife's or ex-wife's sister would go missing and no one would say shit in anything. So that really, really, it blows my mind because she can check that. I mean, she's doing research. You think that she could check and see if his sister-in-law was missing. And he goes into really fucking graphic detail too. So I really don't get that. Is if he, he tells her something that could be easily disproven, but then he says it with so much detail. I don't know if there's just something big I missed. And somehow in the three books that I read and the research I did and the research Igor did, I don't remember seeing anything about his sister-in-law. If I am wrong, I would love for someone to tell me that they found something where his sister-in-law really was killed or that she went missing. I would love to know that because it's driving me crazy. It just, I don't know. I mean, maybe he just thought she wouldn't look into it. Or maybe she would chalk it up to he got that detail wrong. Or maybe it's he wished that he did this. Uh-uh. I think the bottom line is that the fact that he's willing to say, I killed someone and gutted them and skinned them like a deer. Like he goes into this. So the fact that he even goes into all that detail, it shows that he at least has thought about it and... And that he wants her to think that he did it. So again, that's that he's praying things out there. May or may not have even fucking happened. But he's saying it like he really wants her to see. I've, I have done these big, terrible, horrible things. Look at how big and terrible and horrible I am. So it's almost like he's peacocking for her. I don't know. It's really frustrating and upsetting and I'm angry about it. I will throw in this little note here to end on a funnier note. Tony specifically asks Shawcross if there are other serial killers that he's spoken to. And so it's always fun when you hear about the um, interpersonal dynamics of serial killers. So there's, there's notes about him talking to Bundy. And the funny thing is, I had just looked up some information in a book that I have by Christopher Barry D. And it was about Bianchi and Bono, the Hillside Stranglers. And he's just so dramatic. And it's like the his tentacles of evil infested them. And it, it it's just over the top. And then I went in and I saw him and I said, you know, you're a piece of shit. Like, it's all like posturing. Like, yeah, I'll tough talk a serial killer. What? And so I was thinking it was just pretty ridiculous. Uh, of course, I have several of his books because I hoard books because you never know when I might need them. And some of them are talking with serial killers. That's two of the books are where he actually interviews serial killers. So in Serial Killer Whisperer, Shawcross specifically mentions that Jesperson. So these are both serial killers and I... If you don't know who they are, we will end up going over them. So Serial Killer, killer Shawcross. Um, actually, last podcast on the left just did an awesome job of talking about him on their show. So check that out. 
So Jesperson writes Shawcross. And he's like, dude, you need to talk to Christopher Barry D. He's shit. He tells it like it is, man. You need to talk to him. Which is hilarious because I just got done saying that I don't, that he seems so over the top. I don't know whether I can trust 100% what he says. So it's funny that the serial killer's like, no, man, he's the shit. Like, it's some real talk right there. And Shawcross gets pissed. Like, fuck you. Don't tell me who to talk to. I'm not going to fucking talk to that guy. Fuck you. So he gets, like, real mad about it. What's really funny is I went to one of my aforementioned books about talking with serial killers. And in 2003, Shawcross is in Christopher Barry D's book. So I guess he got on board eventually. So that's one of the fun things is seeing what serial killers get mad at each other about. So that's part of the uh, that's part of the fun of the research is coming across these. I'm actually going to do a an episode where I talk about the different type of serial killer books and some of the common authors and so forth and so on. So look forward to that. That'll be coming out at some point. Well, that wraps up this episode. There will be a couple more episodes in the Families That Murder Together series coming next month. But in honor of Halloween, the next episode will be about serial killers who thought they were vampires. So we will cover like Richard Chase and, and other ones that fit that category you can look forward to some halloween spookiness coming out next i would like to once again thank my socially distant assistant igor for the research she has helped me with and i want to thank you all for tuning in make sure that you check out murderlabmedia.com and you can find us on facebook where you can like us and you can find out when episodes are out and you can catch the memes that I'm throwing out there because I am hip to what you kids are doing these days. I don't, I don't know. So once again, you can go to murderlabmedia.com for more information. We are available on Google Play and iTunes or any of your favorite podcast apps. If you need the RSS feed, you can find it at the website. Thank you for entering the lab. Blah, 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 blah.